Hello and welcome everyone to Record of the Year with Chris. And Chris. The show where we analyze, criticize, and quantify a year's most notable releases in order to determine what was in fact the Record of the Year. While also providing a Record of the Year. This is our second episode of our first season where we're focused on the music of 1994. And today we will be talking about Stone Temple Pilots' colorful release... Purple. That's right. Released June 7th, 1994. A number one record in America for three consecutive weeks that summer, amazingly enough. Yes, sextuple platinum, if I'm not mistaken. Indeed, indeed. Six million records. That's a lot. What an era. I was going to say, a record like this released in 2024 would not sell six million. Well, let's be real. A record doesn't sell (laughs) any. (laughs) No record sells any copies anymore. But still... Uh, I would be hard-pressed to find that many streams of STP. I think they have like 2.4 million listeners on Spotify monthly, according to their stats on Spotify, something like that, which is still quite good. Uh, But at this point, they're a legacy, you know. For comparison's sake, I actually looked at other rock records that topped the charts in 94, Mm. just to get a sense of like, is this a good accomplishment or is this standard? Okay, how'd they do? And I will say, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Nirvana, R.E.M., Pearl Jam, and even Pantera all topped the charts at one point or another in 1994. Wow. Pantera even? (laughs) For one week. Wild. Insane. Far beyond driven. Crazily, Sundo Pilots had the longest stretch at number one with three consecutive weeks. Wow. Very impressive. Very impressive. That shows just how big this band was. Well, I mean, their singles are huge. Huge songs. The, The songs on this record are still played constantly. Absolutely. Did you have any relationship with this music, this record in particular, before prepping for this episode? Only on hearing the singles on the radio, like I just mentioned. Um, Interstate Love Song, everybody knows that. I I still hear that on, you know, 94HJY and, and all the other rock radio stations, for sure. But I wouldn't say I had a relationship with it, no. I actually really started listening to Stone Temple Pilots actively maybe six or so years ago when a buddy of mine was playing it in their car uh, when we were going out for a lunch date. And they, they put on, they're like, hey, you like STP? And I was like, I, not really. You're like the motor oil? Or? <laughs> uh, and, he, and he put on purple, funnily enough. And, and uh, yeah, it's good stuff. But no, I, I would not say before preparing for this, I had heard too many of the, the non-single songs or, or really listened to Stone Temple Pilots of my own volition. I mean, when you were getting into the radio and listening to your own music, they were not to be found, really, on the radio. Not, maybe Interstate, no. yep. maybe Plush mm-hmm. off of Core, which yes. was their first really big song. Yep, yep. And that's definitely the song that I heard when I was eight or nine years old. And my brother and I just loved it. Yeah. We're like, this is the band. It's cool, man. They're really unique. They're really cool. I think they did a great job of being, uh, I guess you would call them a grunge band, but very melodic. So many different textures, so many different guitar tones. You get that slide guitar, very kind of almost like dirty country. You know what I mean? You could feel this is a sound rooted in eclectic classic rock. Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, you can hear Zeppelin all over this thing. Mm -hmm. And just the the diversity of sounds that you hear, the diversity of tonalities that you hear, some of the rhythms, just the sound of it. Yeah, and I mean, listening to this record is such a nice breath of fresh air compared to listening to Dookie. Mm, Uh, In what way? uh, The instrumentation and just the different sonic qualities and the different time signatures and the different uh, quietness and the loudness. And there's a lot more texture and depth in this record that just Green Day didn't even touch. You called it colorful in your introduction in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, but it's actually accurate for the music. Yeah, exactly. It's basically Weezer's Blue Album with a little bit more passion. Ooh. Because red is the color of passion, and then that makes purple. (laughs) Thank you. That was uh beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Well, before we get into a passionate discussion about this album through our five categories, which are, of course, for first-time listeners, production, average song score, vocals and lyrics, musicianship, and listenability and legacy. That's how we'll determine our final score for this record. Also, at the end of every episode, we will be establishing our raddest riff from the record, of which there are many on this one. Many, 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 many. Our most laughable lyric, maybe our best lyric as well, and which song from this record would go in our 1994 time capsule to be saved for all time. I'm intrigued to see what you choose off this one, Christopher. It's a tough choice. Let's talk about some music real quick that maybe wouldn't make a time capsule. I want to first, just to give some context, talk about Billboard's top five records the week of June 7th, 1994. Mm. You would never guess number one, so I won't even Chrissy guess this you. But I will say it's Stone Temple Pilots related, and it's kind of fascinating that this was number one. The number one record in America in the first week of June 1994 was The Crow soundtrack for the Brandon Lee movie, The Crow. Wow, never even seen it. Amazingly, I had the Crow 2 soundtrack, City of Angels. Are you serious? Yes, because it had Hole's cover of Gold Dust Woman nice. on it, uh, you know, the Fleetwood Mac. And it also had a great filter song called Jurassitol. It was a killer soundtrack. Really dug it. Uh, the original Crow soundtrack featured Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine, Pantera, Violent Femmes, and today's artist in question, STP, with Big Empty. That was actually the first people huh. heard of Big Empty was Very from cool. this record. And also they played it on their Unplugged, which was recorded... Mm. Um, probably six months before the record came out. Actually, maybe it was late 93. But I think that MTV held off the release of that performance until the record cycle, maybe to not spoil the song. Gotcha. But, uh, so The Crow, number one for that week. Okay. Number two, a Tim McGraw record, Not a Moment Too Soon. Nothing to say. Haven't listened to it. We're ignorant. Are we? We're country ignorant. For sure. We are some ignorant country guys. Yes. Number three, The Sign by Ace of Base. Again, nice. we're talking about Ace of Base every episode. I have a feeling. Number four, this is one of the most fascinating things. This will make no sense to you, but at the time, I definitely remember this being a thing and being confounded by it then. The number four record in the country in June 94. Chant, The Benedictine Monks of Santo Domingo de Silos. I don't know how to say that. I think that was right. But that was literally a Gregorian chant record that like charted, and it was huge. How? In the same way that Enya and Yanni and John Tesh oh, were big. It was gosh. like yeah, yeah, music yeah. for the backgrounds of middle-aged parties. <laughs> Do you, I don't know how else yeah. to put it. Our, it was our parents yeah. put it on when they want something inoffensive. It was crazy, though. I remember that being big and being like, what? 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 What, what year is it? <laughs> A little oh, yeah. bit. What year 12 is it? <laughs> yeah, 1294? <laughs> Honestly. Um, And the number five record, uh, another soundtrack, Above the Rim, a movie I've never seen, but it featured Regulate by Warren G. Mm, Is that about really tall basketball players? One with, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was was about Wemby. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, it was basically, I think Wemby was AI based on Above the Rim. Oh, cool. Yeah, and now he's in the league, so there you go. Love that for him. As for singles, really, really strong list here. Hit me with it. You'll never guess number one, so I won't even Is have it off you. the Crow soundtrack? <laughs> I wish. It's I Swear by All For One. I don't know. Do I know that song? And I swear. Oh, yep. By the moon. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. good song. Oh, yeah. Solid song. Yeah. But that was number one, which yeah. makes sense. Pop is R&B always was big, yeah. It's funny because it's like the, the rock records were doing well, but the pop singles were doing well. And I think that makes sense. I think it's the people who were could afford to buy albums were more inclined to listen to rock. This, I'm just thinking about this now. People who could buy a single, a pop single, were kids. 
True. Right? I was buying singles at this time. I just started my CD collection at this time. Purple was, in fact, one of my very first CDs ever, along with Blue and Dookie and some of the ones we've mentioned. But up until that point, it was singles. Wow. And my dad's record collection. It wasn't, it wasn't, right, I wasn't right. buying CDs when I was a kid. Um, number two, a Madonna song, I'll Remember from the film With Honors, which I think stars Joe Pesci. That was kind Never of a big seen song. It. Love the Pesh. <laughs> Love the Pesh. Uh, that's uh, Fishy, right? Joe Fishy. Exactly. Number three, Janet Jackson, Anytime, Anyplace. Nice. One of the steamiest songs ever to chart. And uh, number four, Regulate by the aforementioned Warren G and Nate Dogg. I had a thought too, because there's some great music from 1994 that wasn't necessarily on great records. Okay. That I've made a playlist of singles from 94. That Ooh, I think nice. at some point, I don't think we'll score them or anything, but I think they should be addressed. Sure. Things like Possum Kingdom by the Toadies. Oh, yeah. One of the best rock singles of the alternative era, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. But like, I don't know if Rubberneck is an album we need to discuss. So in other words, just to address more music, I got a playlist cooking I think could be fun. Maybe we'll put All For One on there. Sounds great. And you'll be able to talk about some of this stuff. Um, and then number five, surprise, surprise, The Sign by Ace of Base. Jesus. So again, number one song, I swear, all for one. Number one album, The Crow soundtrack. Mm-hmm. An amazing time to be alive. Yeah. <laughs> consuming popular music. Oh my God, yeah, absolutely. So now that, Chris, you've given us a fantastic snapshot of the world we were living in when this record came out, why don't we get into it and talk about Purple? I couldn't be more excited. Let's dive right into our first category, production, sound and sequencing. That's right. Uh, this was produced by who? Brendan O'Brien, ooh, the man himself. Ooh, the man indeed. Emphasis on that. Yeah, so I forgot that we've talked about him in the past because he engineered Blood Sugar Sex Magic by Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I also didn't realize that he's basically produced almost all my favorite rock records of all time. Say more. Battle of Los Angeles, uh, Rage Against the Machine. He's done a bunch of Foo Fighters. He has done so many great Pearl Jam records. Oh, yeah. Plus, Super Unknown by Soundgarden, which we will talk about on another episode. He's done Neil Young's Mirrorball. That was with Pearl Jam, yep. He did other STP records, um, multiple. I know I mentioned uh, Battle for Los Angeles, but he also did Evil Empire and other following Rage Against the Machine records. He has produced Limp Bizkit, Korn, Offspring, Train, Papa Roach, Bruce Springsteen. Woo! I mean, this dude has done... uh, Trey Anastasio, for God's sake. My man. He has produced and mixed... So, so, so much for so many hard rock. That's really his, his cup of tea is hard rock, alternative, rap rock, that kind of stuff. But he, he's had his hand in the mix since the late 80s, all through the 90s, and even up till now. And it's a fascinating thing. He produced Stunto Pilot's first record, Core, which to me does not sound good. Like, it's of its time. Kind of like the 10 thing. Great songs, mm. but the tones, the approach, just the standards of mixing, and it's crazy because that's you know released two years before this. Yeah, sounds like a different band. Even some of the songwriting is different, but the sound is the thing that stands out to me the most with Court, and it's why I'm less inclined to listen to it, even though I like a lot of the songs. To me, Purple, Tiny Music, Number Four, the you know, the subsequent STP records produced by O'Brien. Just some of the best sounding albums of the era, and in fact, to confirm this bias that I had just because I was like, I don't know. I just find myself always wanting to hear it. I've yeah. never stopped listening to this record. It never felt like it was of its time the way some other alternative records that I loved as a kid feel now. I mm. felt as I entered adulthood, I was less inclined to listen to certain things that I loved when I was a kid. So do you feel like this record belongs later or earlier? What you said, it doesn't sound of its time. It's timeless. Timeless. It could be 1974 
It could be 2014. You'd be like, that's a good sounding guitar. Yeah. Those drums sound sick. What a great vocal tone. Good mix. Yeah, yeah. It's just a good sounding record. So I made a playlist of similarly minded alternative rock artists and just shuffled it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to compare it across stuff that it should be compared to. So Super Unknown, Vitalogy, Live Through This by Hole, even Throwing Copper by Live. Mm. Just because there's a little bit more variety, but but they get a little grungy. Sure. Uh, and and Jar of Flies by Alice in Chains. Nice. But without question, Purple was the thickest, purest sounding of all of those. Yes. Vitalogy and Super Unknown sounded pretty great. I liked those productions a lot. This one was as good, if not better, on almost all counts. Very nice. And it's very bass forward. This mix. Oh my God. It's yeah. incredibly thick. I, I, mean, I mm-hmm. already used the word, but it is a thick, deep. Tone. Right. And all that being said, you still don't lose too much of the high end. It's not muddy. No, it's, it's, just it's mixed perfectly. It really bassy. is mixed perfectly. Yeah. it's. I'm a huge fan. I love how this record sounds. So we should talk about what we actually scored it. Absolutely. So for being a little nitpicky, obviously production, it's 10 points from me, 10 points from Chris, but it's broken down into sound and sequencing, so mm-hmm. kind of five and five. So in terms of sound, I gave this 4.5 out of five. Maybe I knocked it half a point because there are other better sounding records in the world. Maybe I was a little harsh, but I didn't give it a perfect score. I have a feeling you might have given it a perfect score. I gave it 4.5 as well. Oh, nice. I think, again, just allowing for headroom, something we talked about at the end of last episode. Exactly. Just like, like, no one can get perfect. Yeah, and maybe there's an album that sounds great with a higher degree of difficulty. Mm. I'm thinking of the Downward Spiral Dummy, these kinds of things. Yeah. That maybe we hold out for something that has even you That's know loftier I goals. Think, I think Downward Spiral would get a five. But as five. rock music goes... You can't do better than this. Right. In this or any era. Mm-hmm. I think it sounds that good. Brendan O'Brien is a master. By the way, recorded in your native Atlanta. Atlanta. <laughs> Not really native, but you Yeah, know. he took a southbound train. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed he did. My only knocks against this record come in a little bit in sequencing, too. I think, considering the variety of alternative rock styles that they're doing here, I think this is a very well-paced record. Mm. But there's two aspects that I think could be improved upon. One, I personally think Vaseline would have been the perfect opener for this album i mm. like how meat plow opens we'll talk about it in a moment once we get into song score which is our next category vaseline with that fade in and then coming in on that riff i just think like that's a perfect song to put in that position i agree it's a much better song than meat plow i agree so that probably is pretty good you're gonna i'm gonna blow your mind right now i gave it a five out of five for sequencing i love the transitions they do such a good job of putting quiet songs intermingled with loud songs and even when it's two loud songs back to back there's a little bit of an intro that gives you like a bit of a lick so you get a little bit of a palate cleanser before it just goes hard hard you know what i mean yeah i i think this record is truly perfectly sequenced there's not too many songs none of the songs are samey really there are multiple fast hard rock songs but they have enough distinction between them that they don't feel like the same songs. And they're also such good musicians that they've written riffs and melodic changes that individualize each song much more so than a band like Green Day or uh, Bad Religion or Offspring or something like that. So I think the songs are unique enough and individual enough and they've sequenced them in a, in a perfect way that I don't really have much else to say other than they, they nailed it. So your score, 9.5 out of 10. That's right. And I'm giving it a 9 out of 10. Yeah. That's a good start. I'm the good cop. you're the great cop and I'm the good cop is really what it is because I think we both I'm already excited about the rest of this conversation because I don't we don't talk about this before we start recording and I don't have much of a sense of what you think about this band or these songs individually but based on what you just said it's the reaction I was expecting from you Mm. given your tastes given what you look for in music 
this band has a lot of it. Really does. So I'm excited about the rest of this conversation. A nice start, though, for the band. Nine and nine point five. Ooh, very strong. All right, man. Let's get into the meat of the conversation. Let's talk song score. Was that a pun? No, because the first song is Meat Plow. Let's get into the Meat Plow of the conversation. Sounds good. Let's plow through this. That's a pretty inappropriate name, if you ask me. Meat, oh. meat Plow? What even is that? I don't even know what that is. It's disgusting. I don't. Okay. So should we should we say what our average song score is at the top? For sure. Okay, so there's 11 songs. Right, and in this is an instance, and let's just address it right now, there is a famous hidden track from this record. Yes. Man. Our second album. It's hilarious. And it was always a favorite. My brother and I loved it. It would make its way into mixtapes because I would often put Kitchenware and Candy Bars, the last track of this record, onto mixtapes, and yeah, I would yeah. just let it roll. Totally. That's not STP. That is an 80s crooner, this kind of quirky crooner from Washington State who the band found and got the CD. And they were like, this would be such a funny play on the hidden track thing of putting an uncharacteristic, quirky song indexed late in the last track. Let's just put this there because this is our second album. It's about our second album. We're not scoring it. It's not included here. It's not the band. If it was the band doing it, it I would, would be include different. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. That's fair. Also, I respect that it's remained hidden. Because mm-hmm. on Spotify, they now index most of the songs that were hidden when I was a kid are now cataloged. We They're talked about it last track. week yep. with All yep. By Myself. Not this one. Not at all. <laughs> it is listed. It's Kitchenware and Candy Bar slash, slash second album or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we're scoring 11 tracks here. Exactly. All by STP. So my average song score out of 11, 8.18. Wow. Incredibly high. Incredibly high. Incredibly high. We are so closely aligned. Really? 8.227 for me. Whoa. All right. So I'm the good cop. You're the great cop. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, we're talking decimal points. That is a really high song score. So that'll be really, really interesting to see in the breakdown how that goes. For reference, by the way, because we don't have much to compare it to. And at the end of every episode, we will kind of put these things in context a little bit. But based on when we did Blue Album for our Weezer album rankings, I will say this. I won't say the score. It was a lower score than this. It was. Blue Album has a lower song score than fucking Purple by SCP, but like that's how good this record is, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. And how consistent it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's not as many tens, we'll talk about it, but there's so many songs of quality. Exactly. And I think it's fantastic that we are talking about Purple on this new show versus Blue Album Battle, because this record is so good, but I don't necessarily know if it would beat Blue in the categories that we had in that show. I think it would have. It wouldn't have won opening track. Definitely not. <laughs> I'll tell you that. It may have won closing track for you. We'll see when Possibly. we get there. Possibly. Just because of your feelings about Only in Dreams, it would have been tough for me. Mm. Uh, oh, well, I don't want to spoil anything. No, so. no, no. But uh, it's Real quick, real quick. Before we get into Meat Plow, what is your spread? What's your lowest scored song? What's your highest scored song? My lowest scored song is a seven. Whoa. That's very high. My highest scored song, I don't want to say. Okay. Because I think it'll be I a point know of when, conversation I want to know later. when you have a 10. Because you didn't have a 10 on the last episode. Spoiler, Spoiler alert. Spoiler. Break us down, it'll break me down 
All right, let's talk about Me Plow. This is my lowest scored song, which is very disappointing for an opening track. Sure. I want an opening track to be better. My lowest score, 6.5 for Me Plow. Fair. Which is still a pretty damn good song. At For me, 6.5, I'm still listening to it. I don't hate it by any means. Far from a skip fa. Obviously not my favorite song. Unfortunately, my least favorite song. But I still think it's a solid opener. We get a taste of what this band is capable of sonically. We get a taste of what Scott Weiland's voice is going to sound like. We get to know who the band is. You get harmonies. Yes. Tense chord voicings. Very, very. Thick-ass distorted tones. Insane, insane. So that's the thing that I really like about this band is that these are not standard chord progressions that we are used to hearing in rock and roll at least that i'm not used to hearing in standard radio friendly rock and roll there are some very dissonant sounds in a lot of these songs that are just odd to the ear but they make it work maybe it's because of the guitar tone maybe it's because of how the dissonant chord resolves i'm not 100 percent sure i'm not a super well-trained musician i can just hear things and appreciate how they sound well that's a brilliant observation and it's absolutely a hallmark of this band who have voiced that their intention is always try to make a chord more compelling. Can I add an extension above the general basic power chord, triad, seventh chord? Can I add ninths? Can I add sharp elevens, which they do on nearly every song here? So much so that it necessitates a tritone counter. Oh, God. That's right, folks. And we've got one here in track one, Meat Plow, where I got my handy guitar here, Christopher. Yeah, I see. By the way, Chris... What the hell is a tritone for our non-musically inclined listeners? If I'm not mistaken, Chris, it is the note between a perfect fourth and a perfect fifth. Do you want to play for people what a fourth would sound like? And a fifth? Now play that in the middle. Together. Horrible. Beautiful. It's quite possibly one of the worst. It's not as bad, in my opinion, as a minor second. Minor second sounds worse than a tritone, but this is arguably in music. The interval you try to avoid at all cost. At least that's what I was taught when I was studying music. Unless you're Dean and Robert DeLeo, the guitarists and bassists of this band. The damn DeLeos! <laughs> because they show how you can use these sounds and make them beautiful. See, a lot of bands use that kind of tonality to create darkness, mm-hmm. to create menace, to create heaviness. And sure, they do that too, but they also use that sound to create beauty a lot on this record. They even use a minor second here. In this. So here's the progression of the pre-chorus, ready? It's pretty standard shape-wise. A B power chord, but you let the open strings ring. So literally that makes a B sus four, which okay. is a B with an E up top. Then we move that up one fret, which creates a C major seven, which by the way, you talked about that flatted second. But when balanced out. I know, it's crazy. And then they go to an F chord. But it's not your standard F major. No, no, no. It's an F major sharp 11, which is basically an F with a B in it. And he literally fingers it like this with an F power chord, but he throws a B on the G string. Listen to this. So you put that together. But the thing is, When I was a kid and I knew nothing about music, I recall vividly being on a family vacation with my family in San Diego, which I grew up in Rhode Island. San Diego was as exotic a place that I'd ever been at that point Mm. in the mid-90s. And I was listening to this album on my disc man and listening to Meat Plow. And when those harmonies kicked in on that pre-chorus and I heard those guitar sounds, I thought to myself, and I remember the thought, 
still. That's the best sounding music I've ever heard. Wow. Now, do I still believe that? No, I'd probably listen to like Because by the Beatles or something. You know what I mean? But it was so haunting and compelling in ways I could never describe as a kid. Right. I couldn't describe for years as a player. But now I hear and I go, oh my God, they're doing all the sounds that I love. They're singing in perfect fifths. The Benedictine monks would be proud, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Arguably, <laughs> it's a very Gregorian harmony. And you could point to, you know, bands like Alice in Chains doing that at the mm. same time. Oh, yeah. You know, their contemporaries there. But balanced out with all of these beautiful extended chord voicings that, yes, out of context, eh, but when you put them in context, you go, actually, that's kind of beautiful. And it actually serves the song in a non-distracting, but in fact, elevating kind of way to my ear now i know that sounds not for everyone but this album sold six million records it's for someone for sure and it's not like the singles are devoid of these sounds too that's the thing totally so that's our tritone number one we're gonna keep the guitar on my lap and the counter going here as we move through the rest of these songs my song score here is a 7.5 nice not my least favorite on the record but as i mentioned in the first category i don't know if it's the best opener and as much as I had that amazing moment in San Diego, it's not one that I think about all that often. Right, right. This is not the song that I would put on to show people who STP is. No. And I think we're in a weird trend. We talked about it a little bit last episode. Like, weird choices for openers on yeah. some of these records. Very, you know? Some like cool weird and some, and I think this would be cool weird. Yes. But still weird, considering some of the other options, I think, on they this They could record. have certainly picked a worse song to start oh, yeah. it. Oh, but they yeah. could have picked a better one, hypothetically. I agree. Like maybe this second song. That's the song, right? <laughs> you know what? Most people confuse this song with when I say Vaseline, the song, they think of She Don't Use Jelly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Flaming, Flaming Lips. Lips. This the whole entire show is just going to be Chris playing acoustic <laughs> yeah, guitar now. This is nice. It's like he's singing with Chrissy. Um, but yeah, so Vaseline by Stone Temple Pilots, big single from the era, rockin' song. In my view, this is a nine. Wow. Very highly regarded. I think it's amazing elementally above all. What do you mean? Perfect structure, great riff, great vocal melody, amazing drum groove, compelling bridge, great guitar solo, harmonies right when you want them. It just hits so many checkpoints along the way and achieves it all in under three minutes. Nice. So to me, if you're yeah, going to write- it's a short song. It's a short song. It, it's energetic as fuck. Mm-hmm. And it just hits all the points in perfect proportion. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the intro is haunting, but it's, it lasts all of what, 15 seconds or something. It's a fade in. And you know what that tone is there? That's bassist Robert DeLeo using, doing like this bend from an A to a B flat. 
running his bass through a wah-wah pedal. He's literally while sweeping through a wah-wah pedal, That's which cool. you never hear on a bass. And uh, I'll just say right now, tritone counter number two. Dean DeLeo's chord is a B-flat major 13 sharp 11. You see that all the time in the books. <laughs> yeah, you hear that all the time on Pearl Jam records. I mean, I love Pearl Jam, but they ain't coming up with this stuff. That's literally it's the, the chord. chord. So weird. I won't even say like what makes it that, but you can hear it. That's pretty tense. Somehow it works beautifully here in this bridge. That's a one chord bridge that releases into the solo, but boy, what a chord it is. It really is so great. And that solo, dude, so good. Amazing. I think Dean DeLeo is an incredible guitarist. Very much so. He's got one of the deepest toolboxes of the era, one of the great sounds of the era. His style of soloing doesn't necessarily suit my personal taste. I like Mm. more melody in my soloing. Yes. He's more just choppy and licky. Yep, very much so. But I think his strengths lie in his harmonic choices without for sure question. that that's where he he stands alone and his phrasing so even though he's not weaving melodies through this like david gilmore slash or someone like that his phrasing is always interesting and sensible it's not a random assortment of licks right it's licks that are random but organized in a non-random way sure sure and i think he really leaves the melodies up to scott wyland for sure um in the vocals and and allows him to sort of do his own thing And we have to just commend him right now to sing over some of these chords, to come up with melodic ideas over some of these chords, over... I mean, that's a gift. I wouldn't know what to do with that chord. Yeah. They were just so simpatico in the way they wrote songs. Basically, this band, effectively, one of the DeLeo brothers would originate most of the material, though Vaseline is a full band composition. Mm -hmm. It's the only one on the record I've found That's right. And they would, of course, present them to Wyland, and and he would kind of choose. Wyland does have another songwriting credit on this record, and you can kind of tell. More on that later. Um, but this one actually originated in a curious way where Robert DeLeo, the bassist, who I think he wrote most of the best songs on this record. Mm. Well, mm-hmm. I can't even say that. They're all good. So, I know, I know. But I really like what he does musically. He's like the Mike Mills of this band. Okay. You yeah. know, the Paul For McCartney. For those who don't know, this, Mike Mills, the bassist of R.E.M. Right. Where he can really play everything. Like He can play really good guitar, but he's the bassist. And yeah. he writes a lot of the great chord progressions, which we'll get into later. But he actually bassed this riff. On the blinker of his 57 Buick, when he would his turn on the blinker. blinker sounds like that? It would go, kiku, 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 kiku. And he would just be tapping Oh, it's it. just the rhythm of it. Exactly. And he was like, oh, maybe I'll write a riff to that. Kiku, 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 kiku. So that's why that riff is what it is. And that's why that riff, unlike most songwriters, that riff never resets. Do you notice? Most songwriters would go... Right, yes. This thing powers through the bar line and keeps its phrase of three beats. One, two, three, 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 one, two. Even though we're clearly in four, four time. Yeah, that's really true. I love that restraint. I love that choice. That's progressive rock influence. Very much so. Very much so. You know a band that might have been influenced by these guys? At least like that riff in particular, freaking Matchbox 20. That this riff, I think I'm you're serious, right. I think you're like right. that riff. Every time I hear it, I'm not sure whether it's going to be Vaseline or I don't want to be anything other 
the one I'm trying to bring, or whatever, whatever the fuck that's that song. Is that them? I don't even know that. I mean, I know that song. I don't know who that is. Isn't that is. Matchbox 20? I don't know. Maybe I'm talking out my ass, but that's the other song I always think that this is going to be when it starts. Fair. <laughs> and honestly, I'll talk about Matchbox 20 again when we talk about Interstate Love Song. Oh, interesting. Okay. What is your score for Vaseline? Eight. Solid. Yeah. I could have been a little bit more generous, but I think you were very eloquent in your way of describing it. And you basically said everything that I wanted to say. Unfortunately, this falls a little flat in terms of other songs on the record that I just like more. But in terms of the singles, this is probably my favorite one. Oh, cool. I wouldn't have thought that. But uh, no, I guess I would have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of the cooler ones. I actually think the lyrics are something that marred this song. Not agreed, that agreed. Bad, but they're just so impenetrable. We'll talk more in lyrics, but I mean, we don't really have to wait. I, <sighs> Scott Weiland's lyrics are so hit or miss for me. Yeah. Uh, I think that's one big mar on this record for me is the lyrics. I think sometimes I wouldn't call him at the same level of like Gavin Rosdale. No, no, of no. Like full on bullshit that means literally nothing. But it is cryptic. Incredibly cryptic. If I, because oftentimes I use genius and I usually don't click the annotations because they're written by fucking morons and I don't really know what they're talking about. Dumbshit.com. But this was the first time I was like, where are the annotations? I have no idea what he's talking about. Someone please help me out. And no one else could annotate because they also don't know what the fuck he's talking about. I mean, obviously he's going through, for those that don't know, Scott Weiland during this time was heavily addicted to heroin. And so a lot of these songs are about his battles with addiction, how his addiction is hurting those he loves. There's a couple love songs in here or, or lust songs sometimes, but I don't know. A lot of it's sort of poetic, sort of like random. They're lyrics you feel more than you can intellectualize. Yeah. I also didn't know hardly any of the lyrics until now. Even to the familiar songs. Exactly. I was like, oh, that's what he's saying because he does that Eddie Vedder impression on a lot of the songs, which is hard to understand. I have two things to say to that. Okay. One, coincidentally, this song is called Vaseline and flies in the Vaseline being a prominent lyric because Wyland thought that's what the Eagles were singing in Life in the Fast Lane. Life in the fast lane. When he was a kid in the car with his parents and that was on, he heard flies in the fast lane. That's, inc- that's on my level <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly, <laughs> of lyrical <honestly>. comprehension. That's <laughs> hilarious. And to the Eddie Vedder thing, if we were talking about core, I would say, oh yeah, I get it. I think he's really finding his own voice and the different shades of his voice on this album way more than on the first. And the funny thing about core is... And I only learned this in, you know, living with this band for the last 10 days. Wyland was concerned about getting Jim Morrison comparisons on that record because he was actually obsessed with the doors at mm. that time. And when you think of that deep guttural baritone thing with the rasp, oh, yeah. that is a Jim Morrison thing. Yeah. It just so happens that that album came out in 92 while 10 was popping off. And they were like, oh, you're trying to sound like Eddie Vedder. He's like, honestly, I, I wasn't listening to Eddie Vedder. I was trying wild. to completely insane. And, I, and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And he also, I remember he performed with the Doors when they did their storytellers for VH1 back in the early 2000s, late 90s. But like, that's who, if anything, he was ripping off. But I think he had even eschewed a lot of that influence by this album. Mm. And you hear some sweet vocals on this album. Obviously, yeah. the purity yeah. of his voice comes through. He has many voices. He does. He really has many voices, which is cool. But I don't love that, uh, I guess we'll call it the Jim Morrison impression. Sure. Like that he uses a lot in the choruses of, of uh, Interstate Love Song or this song. I'm not a huge fan of that style for him, which gotcha. is kind of what he's become synonymous with because well, he sings that way point, in yeah. so many of his popular songs. So that's for me, when I listen to STP, I, I always blended them in with all of the other grunge singers of this era. 
And so it was really nice to hear songs where he actually sings with a nice voice because I think he's a beautiful singer Incredible. when he sings, not like that. Yes, agreed. I'm really intrigued to hear what you think about Loungefly, track three. Oh, sure. It's okay, it's okay, okay, believe me. Pins on me, pins on me, me, you kill me. The lounge fly, the lounge fly, the fly you bring me. I think I'm free, but the dogs, they won't release me. Don't have a nigger on a dollar, but you feed me. My bottle's empty, but you always will feel me. I feel I'm sinking, but you won't let me drown me. I wanna fuck, I wanna fuck, but do you need me? Nine out of ten. Ooh, a nine out of ten for you. This song fucking rocks. Woohoo! <laughs> Tell me what you love about it. It's so weird. I love how dynamic the entire song is. It changes constantly. Um, I really love the vocal punctuation in the verses of using the same word or set of words three times in a row. It's okay, it's okay, okay, relieve me. Pins and me, pins and me and me, you kill me. Yeah. Like, that's cool. Oh, come on. Your favorite is I want to fuck, I want to fuck. <laughs> but do you need me? Yeah. That's a good line. It is? Oh that's my, a good line. Almost right every there. song has a good line. I know. Like, sometimes, like, the lounge fly, the lounge fly, the fly you bring me, I don't know what the fuck that means. Yeah. But the fact that he goes, I want to fuck, I want to fuck, but do you need me? That's the standout to me it's i can't give what i take away and the other understands meaning i'm a drain on this relationship i can't give what i'm drain what i'm taking from you but you understand right that's the agreement we have come to in this relationship it's dark that is there's so many moments of resigned self-awareness on this record mm. that's when he's at his best for me yeah is where like he knows he's fucking up he knows he's not contributing. Right. He knows he is a drag on his band relationship and his actual personal relationship. A lot of these songs are about his um, girlfriend at the time. I know. It's crazy to think that he's writing these songs in real time about actual events that are happening to him in real time. Yeah. And yet this record came out and then he has to fucking sing about it. Right. Because he sold six million records and they're touring. and like. Well, what's amazing is he had so many issues that they could never really commit to touring that long. They could have just got Eddie Vedder. <laughs> Maybe Rob Thomas from Matchbox 20, your favorite singer. Hey, listen. <laughs> By the way, kids of my uh, generation or a- anyone who was watching MTV in the 90s would surely recognize the intro. That's what used to play for MTV news briefs. And I think I heard that on MTV before I owned this record. This was not a single. So I was hearing it. And then when I put on the record, I was like, is Tabitha Soren uh, and Kurt Loder about to enter my bedroom right now? What's going on? <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. Yeah. What else What else do we say about how cool this song is? Um, a, a little interesting uh, background note about it this is the one track recorded at prince's paisley park studio in minnesota they recorded it in 93 while they were on tour really yeah they were just they were in a big touring cycle for mm. core and they were like let's just like take a day off and go record something and this was a song that they had kicking around that's awesome yeah and it has an energy to it and a, a slightly different sound than the rest between that guitar loop which is a 12 string d minor that's mm. reversed and then looped and even when they play this live they play to yeah loop. i always love that that it's such a great that kind of like revert. Yes. I don't know what that actually is. Like that specific sound, like the that's the the sound of a chord dying out, reverse. So you're hearing 
Yes, exactly. The resonance so actually cool. increase than decrease. Wild. And then it cuts off right at the moment of attack because there's nothing before that. It's silent. So shoop, 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 shoop. That's so cool. So cool. And how about the drumming? Sick. We haven't mentioned the name Eric Kretz yet no. on this record, the drummer of the band. Killer. Very good. Killer drummer. Couldn't be more different than Trey Cool. Not at all. But one thing they do yeah. share is feel and swing. Mm-hmm. I say one thing, I start naming things. Serving the lyric. Yeah. This guy never makes it about himself, but he's always playing something interesting. Always. I mentioned the Vaseline drum beat. So cool. Just oh, the placement of snares. Mm-hmm. And then his, his tribal tom work on this song is amazing. It's very cool. Even Brendan O'Brien throws in a nice touch of you know having some hard panned, kind of filtered, distorted drums in the, in the, mm-hmm. in the corners of the uh, stereo spectrum. If I'm not mistaken, I believe he plays the guitar solo on this song as well. No. You or know it's what? a different. It's not. It's, it's not, not Dean DeLeo. Dean DeLeo. You know who it is? Our old friend, Paul Leary, who many people know as the guitarist of the Butthole Surfers, but we know as the producer of Sublime by Sublime. Such a good record, man. <laughs> 18 to 2, was it? Like number <laughs> number uh, 15 on Rolling Stone's top 100 records of the 90s or something insane like that. Oh, word? Yeah. I remember we dropped that fact in the sh- old show and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> but he plays the slide guitar in the outro here. Uh, Dean DeLeo plays most of the other guitars throughout the song. And I think that loop was based on... Robert DeLeo, the bassist. Uh, and I will say this. This song is in an open tuning, and it's an open D minor tuning. A lot of people use an open D major tuning, which would be D, A, D, F sharp, A, D. This is D, A, D, F, A, D, which, of course, creates yet another tritone. tritone. Three <laughs> for three. Three for three. Uh, good batting average so far. Batting a 1,000. So basically, the main progression is a D minor. And then in that tuning, all you have to do is move one finger down to the second fret of the A string and strum, and it creates this sound. Mm. But that is a B minor 7 flat 5, which is a B with an F in it. That's the tritone. And if you remember earlier, I played an F with a B in it. Tritones invert to one another because they are equidistant. Right. They literally split the octave in half. Exactly. I must say, this might sound obvious, but you describing these things with words is so much better when you have a guitar. Oh, good. To let us hear it. I knew it. The second I started taking my notes for this record, I was like, I got to get the guitar in my lap for it's this It's too one. complex because you'll say it's a B7 flat, 7, 8, 13, whatever. It's like hearing football plays. Yeah. You know, being called in the huddle. You're like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, I don't know what a blue, blue hot dog wiener throw is. <laughs> you don't? Nah. I'll show you right now. Oh, boy. <gasps> we were originally going to call the Blue Album Battle the Blue, Blue Hot Dog Wiener Throw Battle. <laughs> That's a little wordy. Yep. Little wordy. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue. (laughs) Does it? But this next one does. A little song called Interstate Love Song.
I would say this has to be their biggest hit, period. Oh, yeah. 361 million streams on Spotify. Which, you know, there's much bigger songs out there, but as but for them, SDP goes, this is it. This is the one. This is the other Matchbox 20 song. <laughs> well. Like that guitar tone and the major quality of that. Like that's. The way that sounds is that they are stealing from Matchbox 20. No, you are no, not saying that. No, so I'm saying sure. Matchbox 20 stole, fucking stole. Yes. Not the whole song. The entire sonic quality of this song completely shifts after this opening riff. I mean, this riff is just big and major. Mm-hmm. Um, it creates a dominant seventh sound, actually. That is bending the sixth up to the flat seven on oh an E chord. Oh, God. Very slick. We're not even into the meat of the harmonic intrigue in this song, but it's a classic riff right there. It is. It really is. But anyway, that is the sound that I think... Matchbox 20 ripped off almost gotcha. entirely. Gotcha. That's the last I will say about that, <laughs> for the record. Gotcha. That said, I think this is like a perfect alternative rock song. Is it my favorite? Uh, no, not necessarily, but I think it's perfect. I do love the harmonies in the chorus. The vocal <laughs> harmonies in the chorus are really, really good. the intro on through even that slide intro atmospheric slide intro very tasteful yeah yeah and you know personal lyrics a little more penetrable here Mm -hmm, a little mm -hmm. more more obvious not necessarily sophisticated but you know a hand in rusted shame these are this interesting language at the very least oh yeah oh yeah to me the heart of this and my affection for this song beyond what you just said actually i think the choruses and the harmonies in the chorus are incredible Mm. the chord progression in the verses of this song is so next level that we just have to talk about it for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Written by Robert DeLeo, the bassist. And of course, we're used to hearing it. Just thought it could be nice to hear it like acoustic, just to get it more clean. He wrote it originally as a bossa nova tune. More honestly, interesting, right? He even had the melody, he was like whistling the melody, and he sent it to Wyland while they were on the road. Wyland was back in like the gear trailer, mm-hmm. just like getting away from the guys. And he sent this to him, and he was like, oh, Okay, I can do something with that. And he wrote the lyrics, and they were sending it back and forth. I think over walkie talkies, they wrote it. What if I'm not mistaken? I remember they talked about that on Storytellers. That's so <laughs> cool. But what a progression that is! And it's funny when he mentioned it started as Bossa Nova, I was like, That makes sense because it's very similar to a bossa tune by Antonio Carlos Jobim called How Insensitive, which there's great mm-hmm. versions out there. Sinatra does a great version, Jobim himself, and it's almost the same progression. But when you recontextualize, which I'll name the chords as I go, C-sharp minor, same as, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then we go to the five of that, which is a G-sharp major. That's an inverted major chord. But then it goes to this thing, which I've never heard in a rock song, ever. And I've never actually played this fingering outside of this song, even in jazz tunes. And you can call it a lot of different things, but effectively it's a C-sharp seven. So we start on a C-sharp minor, three chords later we're on a C-sharp dominant chord Mm. over B. So basically the seventh is in the bass Because if you just hear this 
you go, oh, that's a major chord. You add that B in there. Yep. Good stuff. And, of course, tritone. And then it literally goes to a half-diminished chord, so another tritone. And then finally releases to something we can all recognize if we ever heard of a Tom e Petty song. E major. A sus 2, and then E major. Yep. But it makes its way down. The reason this works, by the way, despite its level of sophistication, is what's called a line cliche. And then even if you want to follow it, it goes to an E major. You could say it goes to a G sharp there, because that's in the E major. Right. So these disparate chords are united by a common thread, which is that descending chromatic figure, the stepwise fret by fret by fret. I mean, it's the same thing that makes... You know what I mean? That's just that walk down. You hear it in My Funny Valentine. You hear it all over music. I think this is one of the best applications of that concept ever in rock music, though, as far as I'm concerned. It is so, so good. Well, that is so cool. <laughs> Can't go unnoticed, too. Uh, Robert DeLeo's bass line oh, is boy. radical. What do you think of Robert DeLeo as a bassist? I think he's fantastic. I wish we heard more of him in the record. I think he gets lost in the mix a lot, but whenever you do hear him, you're like, oh, that's so great. Yeah, he's a fantastic melodicist, I suppose sure. you could say. And he just rocks. He's got a great tone, and he, he knows when to play, and I think his bass lines are fantastic. Yeah, and this is one of the best. Just rhythmically, like, you know. You know, whatever. I'm kind of faking it because I didn't learn it, but it's something like that. But it's that upbeat. You know, it's like he came up on Motown. He mm. came up on James Brown. And then got into Yes and Crimson and Led Zeppelin and stuff. But you always feel that funky essence to Very his playing. Very so, yeah. And his note choices are from that, but also from the sophisticated language of those progressive bands that I mentioned. So he's just, to me, like one of the perfect hybrids of feel and intellect. Yeah, totally. And it shows in his writing and in his bass playing. And I know what you mean, though, about the bass, because we called this a very bass-heavy record when we were talking about production, but it's more felt than defined. Agreed. Yep, you took the words out of my mouth. Have you said what your score is for this song? I don't think you have. God, I always forget about that. I'm so excited about these chords. Uh, Can I see a 10? Do we see a 10? 9.5. Wow, very good. You're going to be a little mad at me, Chrissy. I, oh, gave, don't. I gave this an 8. Oh, that's good. That's, that's, a, that's a heart song. Yeah. We established 8 and above is a heart song, so mm -hmm. you, you, you love it, but it's not your favorite I, on the record. I actually like Loungefly, then both this and Vaseline. Believe me, that's where my brain went first. I was like, he likes Loungefly more than And that. I'm not just trying to be cool either. I gave Loungefly an 8. I don't even know if I said that, but I gave Loungefly an 8 myself. So that's a song I like a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I mean, again, craft, lyrics, melody, sound, and affection. All of those things are factored into what do I think of this? Some, some points I give a lot for the craft end of it, some for my affection. This one I have both, but I can't call it like one of my top 10 favorite songs of the 90s or 94. Sure. So it's probably not getting a 10. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm with but you. But 9.5 is as good a score as a song I don't like love to the deepest core of my body could ever get. That checks out. Yeah. And I believe this next song would resonate similarly to a lot of hardcore STP fans. Let's get into Still Remains.
So yeah, I've gathered that this is a song that is one of the most beloved deep cuts from this record among mm. the, the the faithful, among the STP faithful. And that always kind of surprised me because it was never a song that really meant a lot to me. Sure. Growing up. And it still does not mean very much to me. Okay. I still think it's a good song for the choruses alone. <laughs> I always love the chorus. Yeah, the choruses are really, really special. I love the harmonic changes, and I love Scott Weiland's melodic, the the melody that he sings on the chorus, I think are fantastic. Haunting. And the verses are just okay. The verses always felt honky to me. It was like... Yeah, yeah. Because it's like an aggressively pentatonic, our bed we live, our bed we sleep. (laughs) It's like a banjo. I don't know, something But they really do, like, they have so much country influence sure so much like the slide guitar that we hear later in the record and yeah they really have a lot of that kind of folksy feel going on and you hear it in the verses here for sure it happens to be heavily distorted but Mm -hmm. i mean at the core it's that seems so hard to play i gotta figure out that finger i don't know (laughs) perfect which is really just like one of those classic, like, hey, I figured out if I put two fingers here, it sounds kind of good, you know, <laughs> which is basically like an A at nine. Um, it's a nice little riff. I like the riff. I also like that it goes like, kind of leading into the singing. And yeah. by, that, by the way, that's a little subtle tritone. There's only subtle tritones in this song. This song is more pretty, like mm. more just like actively pretty than some of these others on the record. But uh, it emerges high up in the choruses halfway through when it goes um then it goes you know it's this great little thing that happens over the f chord and it creates effectively which is an f major nine sharp 11 again another just major sharp 11 chord that we heard on meat plow and we've heard on basically every subsequent song since love it um, what is your score for Still Remains? Seven. Okay. Did you already say that? No. Oh, good. Okay. The way you said it, I was like, oh shit, sorry, I forgot. No, that's okay. What about you? I gave it an eight, and it's more for my head than my heart. I see. Okay. But I've always loved and been enchanted by the choruses here. I would often endure the verses for the choruses. Honestly, that's the thing that sucks. The fact that the verses are as meh as they are, <laughs> and it still gets a seven. Like, if these had, like, even good Versus yeah. this would be like a nine point song because the choruses are so good. Lyrics to this one are kind of amazing. I agree. This is one of the better lyrical songs, if not the best on the record for me. That take a bath, I'll drink the water that you leave. I love that line. I mean, that's gnarly. It and is. Personal. And well, I, it's just I, such a great visualization of like how infatuated and how much love yeah. you can have for an individual. Like I've never heard anyone put anything like that. I've never heard that before. And I really, that one struck me. So you love when you hear a vocalist and lyricist sing something only they would write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Boom, right there. That's not a cliche. He made it, you know? Totally. Uh, if you should die before me, ask if you can bring a friend. I mean, that's, that's I'll follow you into the dark another great, yeah. 20 years before. You know? Exactly. It's incredible. That's another amazing line. Um, Love is still and sweat remains, a cherished gift, unselfish feeling. You know, just like for once, I'm not being a dickhead. For once, yeah. I'm actually sharing a moment of mutual love and affection yeah. with someone I love and affect. <laughs> is this the song that has the line about a yellow mandarin? Yeah. Like a, uh, not a mandarin, though. Or I a, what does he say? A yellow nectar- nectarine, yellow nectarine. Yeah. And then there's another one, something blossom. Yeah, orange blossom orange breezes. Orange blossom breezes. Which always struck me as lame. <laughs> 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 but, but, but it's sweet. It's yeah. a sweet song. I yeah. like sweet songs, you know? 
The real question is, do you think Pretty Penny is a sweet song? She's a sweet girl. You start here. I'm so curious your thoughts on this one, which is the first real outlier on the record. Okay, so this song is the biggest outlier on the record, right? I mean, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. I think so, unless you count Kitchenware. I definitely wouldn't. This is such a different song. It does song get heavy. Different. Yeah. That's true. So, okay, this is basically a Beatles song. Oh. I hear like late era Beatles in this a You lot. know what's funny is I hear Zeppelin three, but... I, I tomato, tomato. Well, I guess, I guess. <laughs> There's something about the tonality. We'll talk about it. But um, yeah, hell yeah. So White Album Era Beatles. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So if I'm not mistaken, this song is in three. Yes. Right? Is it always in three? Or does it change time signatures in the chorus? Because I tried so many times to be like, one, two, three. I, like, does it, does it modulate time signature? Or does it, is it in three and they just phrase the the lyrics in a weird way. It never loses, it's a great question, it never loses a grouping of three. However, it's not an even grouping of three. Mm. The entire phrase of the chorus, with that, you know, that thing going, which is just so Raga-like and beautiful, just the way they're making their acoustics sound like maybe a sitar. That's, and, maybe that's why I think it sounds like the Beatles, because it sure. sounds very sitar-like. Yeah. I know they were super into that uh, towards the end. Yeah, honestly, in the mid-60s, that's when like George was laying it on thick. But right. absolutely, there's an Indian influence here. But I think it's India by way of the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and mm. some of those bands. Um, the reason I say Zeppelin Three is that was the <coughs> acoustic record. That's where you've got Friends and songs like that, where you're like, oh, this is like dark, demonic acoustic music. And sure. Awesome. <laughs> you know, played by one of the best rock bands ever. That's not quite what you have here, but you have allusions to that for sure. Going back to the chorus... You end up with 33 total beats. Okay. You have three groups of nine, nine, eight time. Each kind of, gone, when you wake in the morning, gone. That's nine. Each of those. And that happens. Okay. Pretty Penny was her name. And then the last group, instead of being nine, it drops one of the groups of three. So it's only six. Huh. So it's nine, 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 which makes 27, and then six, which creates a phrase of 33. So weird. So weird. So cool. It is so cool. Great harmony going there. Mm -hmm. Just like... A sound that, again, none of their peers were making this sound. Not at all. And it's funnily enough, like this song makes it into rock playlists on Spotify. It was released to the radio. It wasn't a, you know, it's like what we talked about with She. This mm -hmm. was a radio single, like uh, one other song of this record qualifies as that too. And they even played it at the VMAs, I, if I'm not mistaken, that year. They set up acoustic on the center of the stage and played Pretty Penny. Wow. It's like, what a choice. Yeah, this also sounds like a song that like Kurt Cobain would want to have written. mm if he had the level of sophistication. Yeah. Yeah. Some of these voicings are just absurd. Um, Tritone. There it is. Uh, right. Right there. That's a G major sharp 11. 
so insane. Right around this time, it's worth noting that Stone Temple Pilots appeared on a Led Zeppelin tribute record, and they covered Dancing Days. And the first chord of Dancing Days is... A G major sharp 11. So they had to put in one of their own songs. Yeah, why not, right? And that's off House of the Holy, not Zeppelin 3, but point taken, I hope. Yes. Very cool sounds here. They even lean into this chord. I don't, even, I don't know how they voice it. I kind of heard this, though, towards the end of the song. That's got to be it. It sounds like it. Sounds it, right? like it. I always assume this was in a different tuning, but I think it's in standard tuning. It just uses sick voicings. You know? Seriously, it is such an odd, weird song. Oh, my God. And they stay on that chord forever in the bridge. They do, yeah. And then they add all those like swooshes and all the other extra oh, stuff kind of going on. Sonically, that just sounds so full and yeah. fantastic. And, you know, okay lyrics. They're not, you know, like mind-blowing, but they're good. It's like a timeless fable, which I think is cool. Mm, yes. Sorry to talk over you there. I've been trying not to. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and what's cool about this, they recorded this song in a living room at a different studio, different space, right to tape, live. Uh, Wyland added more vocals, they did the harmonies, added some more percussion, but basically this is just like the band playing acoustic guitars and bongos sitting around on couches. I There's love that. There's actually footage of it on YouTube, which is awesome. That's so great. It's basically Butterfly. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So I gave this song a 7.5. Butterfly mm. would be a 10 for me. I don't love this song, but I admire it. I just meant in the recording style. I know. I just light it down. <laughs> um, so you gave it seven and a half. Okay. Yes. Not bad. Not bad. Still not quite a heart song, though. No. I gave it an eight. Nice. I also don't give out nearly as many half points as that's you true. do. I did give me plow six and a half, but that's about it. There's one more that has a half point later. Okay, I'm excited. Uh, but Pretty Penny, here's the thing. This would be a less successful, on an artistic level, a less successful record without that song being on it. Agreed, 100%. Even if it's not my favorite, it mm-hmm. adds so much to the breadth of this sequence. Yeah, and it's right in the fucking middle. Yep. Like you need something to smash up the A side and the B side. It's basically the tritone of the record. <laughs> nice. Uh, let's try to tone it up. A little bit here. We just toned it down. Yes, please. I was trying for a segue. It wasn't there. Silver Gun Superman. So we got a little bit of taste of Silver Gun Superman. Also didn't know that this song was about heroin addiction and that a silver gun is a needle yeah, of heroin. That's I pretty, didn't know that either. That's pretty brutal. Silver Gun Superman. So he becomes his alter ego after he injects himself with that horrible, horrible oh, stuff. Oh, the cape comes out. Pretty brutal. Um, okay, so I won't bury the lead. I gave the song 10 out of 10. This is my favorite song on the Whoa! record. <laughs> Whoa! 
oh, oh, we need like a, an alarm bell or it's something. A big deal. Ten out of ten. Wow. It's the only ten. Spoilers, but bruh, this song's so good. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear you say that. Like that opening riff is just like thick and chuggy and like <laughs> I love that guitar tone so much. And it only gets better when they go into the verses with that ascension yeah. moving up. God damn. The only reason I'm not playing it is it's in drop D and I'm not in drop D right now. Otherwise, I'd be okay. playing along with you as you because as, I love it too. I yeah. love it well, too. Well, you don't have to play it. They just heard it. Exactly. 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 It's, it's so cool. And the whole song is just long and patient and you get a lot of different stuff going on. Awesome bridge. Super incredible bridge. Maybe we just play a little bit of that. Funky. Yeah. Like sneaky funky. Mm-hmm. And a fucking ripping guitar solo at the end Ugh. that just goes out of control. I mean, this is the most like throwback kind of song. I'm mean, pretty penny, we just said, is a very throwback song. As far as rock songs go, mm-hmm. this one could be on. A 1972 release by like the sickest rock band of the era with different guitar tones, yes, different tones, sure. But, but I mean, but he's in, using he's using like a '78 Les Paul, and he's running through Marshall plexis and stuff. These mm. are things that were around in the '70s. Yeah, but the way he plays, the way that the song kind of so much bending, he really yeah. leans into his his bending of the strings a lot. It reminds me of Jimmy Page, the bend from the good note to the extension. If that makes sense, like if we're in E. And he's playing an E up here. He's bending from an E away from the good tone up to like, say, a nine. You know, that's something that that Paige does like a mother. Little chromatic runs, you know, mm-hmm. that you hear from Paige. You hear from Joe Walsh. You yeah, know? You sure. hear from like a lot of just the most nuanced players of the previous generation. And worth noting, that is the solo that he played during drum tracking, meaning mm-hmm. he was expecting to replace it. And they went to, he's like, I can, I can better that. I can better that when they went to overdub guitars. And he never did. And Brendan O'Brien was like, I think that's the solo. That's awesome. So like he's finding it and we're hearing it. So we're hearing his brain work. I love that. And I think he does a great job navigating what is not a particularly easy chord progression. No, not at all. Speaking of which. Oh, not another one. D major. So nice. D mm. diminished. C over D, back to D, B flat, C. But what a great chord progression. That diminished. Yeah. Here's the thing. Different. And if I haven't made this point yet through everything that you've heard, this shows how dissonances and challenging tonalities, when used right, are beautiful things. Mm. That does not, pardon the pun, diminish from those choruses. I think that tension and ultimate release elevates the entire chorus, the entire outro, how he's soloing, the notes he's choosing, the fact that he has to play over makes everything more interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't sound bad. Not at all. Sounds Sounds incredible. Yeah, sounds awesome.
Now, you've cited Led Zeppelin as sort of one of their major influences and in, in, uh, Dean DeLeo's sort of mega influence being uh, Jimmy Page, right? This solo, there are so many times where I think it might as well be Slash mm. playing. The band in this in this song in particular, I guess it's maybe a combination of the tone and like how he does these sort of he doesn't do too many pentatonic runs, but he does like a lot of runs and then bends and just all of it sounds very slashy. Um, and For obviously, sure. Slash was heavily influenced by Jimmy Page. Let's be real, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it just really does sound like a seventies eighties rock, or at least the the guitar solo. Does. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, what's going on in the ending of this song? Do you know what actually <laughs> just, happened? They're they're kind of. It sounds to me like they're just like recording, and then they just start fucking around, and then they just decided to leave it. And you even hear it at the very very end, where whoever says, "Oh God," <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. I'm pretty sure they brought in because there's not a click to be found on this record. Mm. Like you know what I mean. This is humans in a room playing. All the drum tracking was done with the guitar and bass playing live. I'm sure Wyland's singing live as well. These aren't takes that they kept necessarily, but to get the drum tracks right. I think what they did was they flew in another take of the song that was in a slightly different timing, hmm. meaning tempo at that point, and just kind of overlaid it and let the whole thing kind of become cacophonous oh, mayhem. And then it's basically, I think we hear the collapse of that version. Because cool. you can hear it kind of fade out, like a guitar is still happening in the background, but the kind of... Um, Collapse is taking over. It's very, I think it's a very cool effect. Mm. And also very analog. Yeah. You know, it's a very classic rock kind of thing to do. Uh, Pearl Jam is good about leaving in those kinds of things. A band like Wilco uses that kind of madness as well on a particular song of theirs called Via Chicago, which, I mean, I heard this 10 years before I ever heard Via Chicago. So the sound of are cool. Sure. <laughs> also, I love that they bring back Wyland singing, like they drop it out for the beginning of the solo and then bring it back with the That's toe of the line. That's so classic. Absolutely. And what this outro always reminded me of, even though the guitar playing is nothing like he would do, uh, George Harrison, Isn't It a Pity, which is an epic song off mm. of All Things Must Pass, his first post-Beatles uh, solo record and the first Beatles solo record to go to number one, mind you, which is kind of funny. Wow. Yep. It's a similar kind of chord movement. Uh, not exactly the same, but it always, I was always like, this reminds me of George Harrison. I don't know why, but now I understand why. And it's just the nature of the part and the nature of the harmony of mm. this part. I will say I gave this song an eight. <laughs> Just kidding. That's I'm not still a very sure the lyrics are great in this song, so that, no. that dings it at least a point for oh, me. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about... I should have considered that. Well, sure, but you, there's a vibe, too. And you go, I want to hear that. Exactly. I want to hear that again and again. I still don't think I know half the lyrics on this record <laughs> when I actually hear Fair. them. So I, I kind of just think of it as just... <laughs> that said, I think his vocal melodies are incredible on this song. Super and, cool. And cover a lot of ground i will say this was always my favorite non-single from the album when i was growing up so much so that back in 1994 fall of 94 i got my first instrument which was a rented snare drum for me to play in school band mm -hmm. and i went i mean it's a very exciting day as you could imagine so I go to the music store, I take it home, and they give you the the pad that goes on it that kind of mutes it, it makes yeah, it yeah. less loud, and it has like the thicker center. Mm -hmm. And then, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. It looks like a very broad nip. Very. Quite. Like, you should probably get that checked out. Probably. I took that sucker home, whatever, it was probably September of 94, and I brought it to my sunroom where I would hang out, grabbed a white wig, don't ask why, <laughs> set up the video camera. And the first thing I ever played was I put on Silver Gun Superman. Wow. And filmed myself playing that snare drum with the mute on because I would consider the mute to be the snare, like uh -huh. the center part, and then the sides to be, or maybe vice versa. But I would play it like <laughs> that's my drum set. 
And the first song I ever played with an instrument that was for me, my own, not like my dad's broken guitar, but like was Silver Gun Superman. Crazy. Yep. That's amazing. I remember vividly. I wish the video existed. I'm sure I taped over it because I was probably very embarrassed. But I was like, <laughs> oh, I can't wait to get home. I got big plans for That's you. That's such a 90s story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to say, the camcorder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the tripod. And now let's get to um, what may be my favorite single mm. of the record, a little song called Big Empty. So as much as this is my favorite single on the record, it's still a 9.5. Mm. It's not quite a 10, but God, do I love it. This is your this is your 9.5. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I, I was a little harsh. I gave it an 8. Okay. But I still really like score. it. I still yeah. really, really like it. And talk about a fantastic transition. This back half is where the transitions are the best, ah. in my opinion. Like the transition from the end of Silver Gun Superman into the nice, quiet beginning of this song is really incredible. And this is a special song. Very special. This is a very special song. I said Vaseline was my favorite single, but it's probably this one. Nice. Now that I think about it. And why? Covers more ground? Yeah. I, lo- I mean, his singing is so much better. It's the best vocal on the yeah, record. Yeah, exactly. Particularly the well, verses. Oh, actually, we may have one coming up. But yeah. So his verse singing is what I want him to sound like all the time. It's the best voice of the 90s is his verse singing. Yeah, because then it goes into the chorus. It does the same trope. It does the same, you know what I mean? Yeah, perfect. But, but the, his, his, thank you. <laughs> I could basically be Scott Weiland. Well, they may need a singer, so, you know, Oof. Keep, keep him in mind. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love when he's in that sensitive area of his voice. He mm-hmm. does it a lot more, by the way, on the third record, Tiny Music, oh, Songs of Vatican Gift Shop, which I used to think was a superior record to this. I don't think that anymore after mm. this process. There's more songs of quality. There's more consistency on this record. Mm-hmm. I, that one's way more quirky, and thus he uses more facets of his voice. Okay, cool. But his singing in the verses here is so exposed it just shows the quality of the timbre of his voice. Because he's almost not even singing. He's kind of like whisper talking with a little bit of melody. This is the kind of thing where where we've done an inverse of Still Remains, ah. where we loved 
the choruses but hated the verses. This is kind of the reverse. I wouldn't say by any means that I hate the choruses of this song. I really, really like them. But the the verses are where it's at. And this is really, um, I don't remember, I don't want to say, like, I think a lot of times we tend to talk in blanket statements, but I think this is one of the first times in this particular record that we hear the loud, quiet, loud, quiet. For sure. That Nirvana was so known for and that this whole era of the 90s rock and roll was known for. But they execute it perfectly. I really love the dynamics between how the verses and choruses sound from each other. I don't they know, don't, I don't, I don't, they don't tend to go back and forth. They have quiet parts, be it the intro to Interstate, mm-hmm. be it the bridge of many of these songs go atmospheric. This is one of them. I love right. the bridge to this song. I mean, just one of the slicker bass moves you'll ever hear that. Uh, whatever that is. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's so cool. It is. And nice little, nice little arpeggio while mm-hmm. the more atmospheric slide work is happening on the electric now. Of course, he's on a dobro earlier in the song playing a slide on a dobro, which is, you know, basically one of those resonator guitars designed to be I don't know slid. what that is. I've never heard that. Yeah, you hear it more on roots, you know, speaking of a country influence, mm-hmm. you hear it on blues and roots music more. And I think he plays it really well, Dean DeLeo. Very nice touch on that thing. And he wrote this song, I should say too. Dean DeLeo wrote the music to this one, as you could probably guess. There's more tritones? Oh yeah. It's shocking how aggressive they are with the tritone <laughs> in the verse of this song. Listen to this. They don't lead into it that hard, but it's there. Yeah. And I love I love the note choices in that lead part, too, that mm-hmm. go over that corporate. But that's an E minor, seven, flat five. But what's weird is he has the fifth and the flat five, which normally it's one or the other. You would hear just this, right, right. which is a flat five. But this is... So much. Dissonance. Like, when you just play that chord, it doesn't sound right. It sounds no. like you messed something up. Right. And I listened closely. I was like, I was like, that's there. It's there. He may release it. He may go. That sounds, I, that Maybe he, sounds a little closer. He goes in and out. I never thought it was a flat five until I really learned it this week. And I was like, oh, shit. But either way, he definitely uses it. And then what's cool is it goes E minor to a C7. Which you would not expect. A lot of songs go E minor to C major. E minor. Nice progression. But just, even if it was a normal E minor and then going, little that has a B flat in it. They love that. They love, they're like, we're not going to play a single major chord in this entire record. Basically, they're they adding don't. little, little weird harmonies everywhere. And that's truly what makes STP so special. Here's a great use of a very simple major chord the choruses to this song, which stand in stark contrast to the verses, obviously dynamically and melodically, but also harmonically, G chord. And then literally, Dean DeLeo takes the G chord and moves it up two frets. And then moves it up three frets from there. So now we're on fret eight. And that's the chord progression. So that's honestly... 
possibly not good songwriting <laughs> or or musicianship for that matter. That's literally just I'm just gonna move. That's like a Billy Joe Armstrong move. He wrote this when he was 16. Wow. So uh, there's another song later on the record that he wrote at the same time that they kind of brought back for this. Obviously, there's sophistication to this song craft, but that choice is the type of thing that like any young guitarist, at least I'm speaking for myself and many of my friends, we would like take our open chords, our E's, our G's, our C's, move them around around and see what what sounds good. good. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what what he was doing here. What we're saying is if you're 16 and you're listening to this show, you suck. (laughs) (laughs) No, you could write Big Empty, which is one of the best singles of the rock era. Yeah, we just playing. The rock era, the alternative rock era. But I will say, too, underneath that chorus, I love Robert DeLeo's bass playing, Mm. where he's doing that... I love those little touches, because this is a power trio, right? They have a singer, but it's a power trio. There's never a moment when Wyland... I've never seen Wyland hold a guitar. No. Every note matters. Every choice matters. When you And even live, they've never had like... I, well, okay. When they've played acoustically, like they're unplugged, they have a second guitarist. When they played SNL and played Creep, they had a second guitarist. But I'm saying like for their rock thing, when they're just like out playing their shows, I've never seen them play with a fourth musician. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? A fifth member, a fourth musician. Right. They get a really big sound because of choices like that. Like really outlining... You know, just really really good. I'm basically playing rhythm guitar, but I'm the bassist. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, I think it's a really cool song. One other sonic touch that I think Brendan O'Brien makes great use of here, and that definitely accentuates the quiet, loud, quiet, loud nature. If you listen to the tones of the instruments in the verses, everything is very close mic'd, meaning there's not a lot of room. It feels like the mics are right on the drums, right on the acoustics. Mm -hmm. And the moment you hear the, all of a sudden he brings in the room mics. That is more than getting loud. That's a change in sonic character. Yeah. The Mm -hmm. sound opens up. The dynamics open up. The performances open up. I think that's part of what makes Brendan O'Brien so good at this job is like he knows how to make production reflect the song's intent. Exactly. Without being that, it's not like it's showy. Right, not at all. I never noticed that until this week. I've been hearing this song for 30 years. Mm. You know, I love this song. I was whoa, it's a totally different drum sound. For all I know, they use a completely different drum kit for the verses and then switch, you know, yeah, to, to yeah. a different... I wouldn't be as surprised as I did because they can in the studio. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've never read anything about it, but it's a distinctly different tone at that moment. And I will say about the drumming there, watching their unplugged performance of this song is what taught me as a drummer how to play ghost strokes on the snare. Doom, doom, ch. And these drags. So I still do ghost strokes with a little bounce in them. Why? Mm-hmm. I never had a drum teacher. I learned from watching Eric Kretz. I learned from watching Dave Grohl and Ringo Starr and Trey Cool. These were my drum teachers. But I remember just being like, hold on, I got to run to my drums. I got to go try that. From watching him play. That's awesome. And it still is how I do ghost strokes. It's probably like not right, honestly, like because it's this song. It works really well where he's a drag just being kind of letting your stick bounce. Right, right. Totally. What a great feel and sound for this song, which is so just like laid back and patient. And yeah, so 9.5 for me, probably the one of the masterpieces of the record as far as I'm concerned. I probably should have been a little more generous, especially when you hear what I'm about to give the next song. Oh, man, I can't wait. Let's hear some unglued and then talk about it.
All right, lay it on me. What do you have in mind here? It's just 8.5. <laughs> oh, my God. So unglued is better than Big Empty. I think it's just in the context of the record when I hear another upbeat rock song, I get really excited. And I also just think it's a great, simple song, and the drumming in this song is fucking sick. Incredible drumming by Kretz in a yeah. completely different manner than he was just incredible exactly, on Big Empty. Exactly. He really shows his range. Mm-hmm. I also really love when a vocalist takes a verse and sings the first line quiet and then gets a little louder in the second line and then louder in the third line. Mm. That's the first time they've used that trope in this record and I think it stands out really, really well. In terms of songcraft, this is one of the simplest songs. The simplest, without question. Great, great. Thanks for backing me up. Um, but I really, I think it's a great song. I think it's a great rock song. Maybe it doesn't deserve the 8.5. Maybe it's closer to an 8, um, especially compared to Big Empty only being 8. In hindsight... But it's locked in. I ain't changing it. <laughs> you ain't changing it. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I just think this song's a, a, just a great banger. It is an absolute banger. It's a song that absolutely feels better than it is. Like, mm. you know, when you actually evaluate it, you go like, well, that's kind of stupid. That's not my favorite solo. Uh, uh. So I gave it a seven. And it's over quick. It's over quick. It feels great. It's a great infusion of energy after a very long song that's not particularly fast, Silver Gun Superman, mm-hmm. and after a very slow song that takes its time as well. And then we just get... Yeah, yeah. And that's a Scott Weiland riff. Scott Weiland was like, I've got an idea. (laughs) Literally played that. They're like, all right, we could do something with that. It does feel like a Dave Grohl song. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, a certain strain of the first Especially the chorus. Yeah, Yeah. got this feeling coming over me. Got this feeling coming over me. Yeah. I mean, it's so great. This is their dumb grunge song. Exactly. I think the next two would qualify, though this one is more just straightforward. This is the one song on the record that wouldn't exist if not for Nirvana's success, as far as I'm concerned. A hundred percent. Right? Yes. This is like a slightly Nirvana, slightly Foo Fighters. And it's good. They do it really well. Exactly. I think it's really about, though, Wyland singing. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. So good. And Eric Kretz's drumming. The, The drum fills at the end of each chorus. Incredible. It's like... Mitch Mitchell from Jimi Hendrix Experience, mm. but like with nut. <laughs> and I mean like not in his playing, but just in his sound. Yeah, yeah. You know, those drum fills He's are so in. good. I love when he goes to the quarter note snares there midway through the choruses mm-hmm. just to give it that extra level. Whew, that's so great. Worth noting too, uh, this was the last song performed live by Scott Weiland before he died. Wow. In December of uh, 2015. Huh. Yep, so you could tell it still meant a lot to him. I'm no not kidding. saying he was like, I'm going to die. Here's my last song. But like, well, yeah. he was still closing shows with it in 2015, right, right. right up until he died. So I just wanted to point that out. I'm assuming they were closing shows pre-Encore. This I, was it the, was the last song he played. This was not with SDP. This was with an, an original band or mm, you know, a okay. different band. I, didn't, I honestly, I never saw SDP live. Again, they didn't tour that much. So at a time when I would have, they really weren't around. Right. And by the time they were able to tour in like the early 2000s, I just wasn't like actively into them anymore. Mm-hmm. I was just becoming like a hipster doofus. And so it never occurred to me. So I didn't know that Chester Benningfield sang with them from uh, the guy. I don't even from, know who that is. The singer of Linkin Park. Oh. He joined right. them at, I in I never knew what his last name was. I may be saying it wrong. I may be Bennington. I don't know. But Chester Chester. Definitely Chester. I, yeah. I didn't forget that. Um, Double like, R.I.P. I just didn't know what they were doing. And so, what, but Wyland and the band fell out maybe in 09. They were just tired of it. It was a long run. It was a long run. A lot of stops and starts. A lot of, you know. Probably still more a lot drugs. Of drama. Probably yeah. still more drugs. But you know what's great? And this is a wonderful thing of, again, this process of getting to know a band, a band that you do have a certain amount of just affection for, just for nostalgic reasons, nothing else, but also musical reasons. Like, 
the DeLeo brothers are such like humble human dudes. They give it up to Scott whenever they can. They're always like, like I've seen interviews where they'll play music and certain vocals. They're just like that. I mean, honestly, that makes me cry hearing him because he was so good Mm. and we loved him. But it was just impossible to work together at a certain point. And we ended on bad terms. And when he died, we were not talking. And, you know, there's a lot of it's regret there, place, clearly. Yeah. It's a rough place to be. But they're also just like, you know, even not related to Scott Weiland. And I love how they talk about songcraft. I love how these guys are humble when they hear your music changed my life. They're like, oh my God. Because they go, I don't forget what it's like when I was listening to Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and all the bands that made me who I am and Kiss and all the, you know, whatever band formed me, mm-hmm. the moments when I got to meet them. I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah. I love musicians who are unabashed fans of music. And it seems like everyone would be. Everyone's a fan of music. They're not unabashedly a fan of music. Sure. These guys are like, I got to meet Jimmy Page. or You know what I mean? I've just heard them just glow about others so much. I, I appreciate that in a in a musician. Absolutely, you have to you have to respect your influences, and there's nothing wrong with being obsessed with the people who made you who you are. Right, and you can tell they're humble about even their own musicality. Like they know that they did a thing that was uniquely them, and that is appreciated by people. Don't get me wrong; they're not like, oh, really? You like that song? Like they know they wrote some great songs. Right, but the novelty never wore off for them. Right, you know the specialness of hearing that kind of thing. So anyway, I just really like. If you ever get a chance to see an interview, read an interview with with Robert or Dean DeLeo, absolutely do it. Uh, should we move on? There is a tritone here, <laughs> real quick. But I got, it's in the lead guitar solo. Every song so far, we got to keep it going. They better be in the last two. Let's move on to Army Ants and see. This is another incredible transition. The end of Unglued into Army Ants is great because they're very similar sounding songs, but just adding that flangy guitar intro thing yeah. just really helps create the flow of the record. So just another uh, ding, 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 another fantastic little thing to add to their production and sequencing. Right. It's a nice way to break up two kind of similar songs. Exactly. Within the song itself. Right. And they bring it back as a bridge, which is a little bit more development. I believe Brendan O'Brien plays a Mellotron on there, much like he did on Breaking the Girl mm. off of Blood Sugar. He's a multi-instrumentalist as well, Brendan O'Brien, very good musician, does a lot of percussion on these records and Mellotron here, some guitar. I don't think he plays guitar on these records because 
You have the fucking Delios. Why do you need? Right. You've got the guy <laughs> from the butthole surfers, bro. Dead. <laughs> Army Ants for me, though, uh, is, a, is a step above Unglued, but still not one of the peak songs on the record mm. as far as I'm concerned. A 7.5 for me. Nice. Always nice. happy to hear it, but not a heart song. I definitely think it's more sophisticated in its construction than Unglued. Yeah. I personally like it more. Feels like a Jane's Addiction song. Those verses, yeah. You know, that kind of just open thing in the way that Eric Kretz is approaching the drum yeah, part there. Yeah, very much so. And honestly, just the singing. fast. Yep, and the singing. All of it sounds like a Jane's Addiction song. And in case you all didn't notice, because I bet you all have an ear for it now, the intro. Oh my God, this chord again? Yeah. D major, sharp 11. Of course, it's up an octave. Yeah, which is uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, can't complain. Can't yeah, and it's definitely a, a phasey tone. It may be a Leslie that he's running through, but it definitely sounds like a, a step phaser or something. You mentioned flange, similar kind of modulation sound. Right. Cool sound. And they would even do it live, which I kind of appreciate. Like he would have like a second guitar that he would do. It was wow, like, just for that, huh? <laughs> which is hilarious. He'd be like Steve Howe from Yes doing like the beginning of Roundabout. Nice. And then go to the electric, you know? <laughs> Sick. Which is awesome. Another really solid bridge. Great little guitar solo. Absolutely. Everything about this song is just hitting the nail on the head. I really do think that this is another fantastic song. I gave it an eight. You'd like Unglued better than this, though? A little bit. Okay, cool. Just a little bit. I think the lyrics here are better, though. I have to say, I like Time Time is not on my side because the way I am, another self-aware and mm. kind of self-resigned kind of lyric. And I love how he kind of expedites this line. I got a heart, I got blood, feel pain. Yeah, he does that a lot where he will nix uh, grammatical things yeah. in order to make it fit either the rhyme scheme or the the, the rhythm that he's Which going for. I'll take any day over stretching a word to make it fit a meter. Right, oh, you for know, sure. That to me is very awkward. This is just slick and cool. Yeah, yeah it's Cool good. stuff, pretty slick good. stuff, neat stuff. Fine. Raw stuff. Fine stuff. And of course, they couldn't go this song without one more. At the end, right? You can look, but you can't You can with the way I <laughs> They were so close. They were so close. Like, All right, we got a gentle one in there up top. We'll chill out a little. No! <laughs> a to E flat at the end. Totally insane. Such an abrupt ending. It is. But I do like how they finish a final verse, and they don't go back to the chorus. They go, let's start another verse, but with more intensity, and then just cut it off abruptly. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's one of those things like Basket Case coming in halfway through the first chord. I can't remember another song doing that by any artist. Like, let's use this as an outro. The outro is almost always recalling an intro or it's the chorus twice and out. Like, sure. you know what I mean? It's, this is, let's use the verse and just fucking change chords and get the fuck out. I know, I know. Fucking change chords and get the fuck <laughs> out. I got it. There was uh, studio tapes though. That's actually what they said. Wow. <laughs> Well, here's a song where they, they definitely take their time and they let it breathe and they let it develop. This is the closing track on the record, Kitchenware and Candy Bars.
time the song starts this one feels like a closing track you know absolutely i feel like it has fantastic build from beginning to end you've got that sound worm kind of growing like we do in only in dreams i think the lyrics in this song are solid i think everything about this song is very very good if i want to go into like the nitpicky of something that i really love is the fact that the the verses build on each other so the first verse we start out with minimal percussion a lot more quiet. And then the second one, you get the guitar doubling, you add more guitar melodies, you have stronger percussion, and then you have those beautiful strings that lead you into that second chorus. And then they finally go into the third verse, similar to the first one. It's quieter again, but then they rebuild it again. And then in that final chorus, they add a super great crunchy build. And I love a song that doesn't have similar verses to each other or similar but they don't they're not identical Mm -hmm. it doesn't just go verse chorus verse chorus we get build within each verse and then we get build within each chorus as well with not just uh feel but also instrumentation and just adding more melodies and everything so it's great yeah it goes from a whisper to a scream Mm -hmm. you know by the end because it's closing vocal variation I completely agree with everything you said. I think it's like a perfectly constructed song, and it's also a very personal song, though I think the lyrics are a little too veiled to have it really resonate, mm. but you feel the emotion of it. It's a song about he and his partner deciding to have an abortion, and um, you could feel a lot of emotion in the delivery of the lines, even if the lines themselves don't necessarily tell that story. Beyond the emotion of it, the craft is just astounding. And this is a Robert DeLeo song here, the bassist. And uh, very simple, actually, what's happening. Actually, it was one of the first songs I could figure out by ear. Because it's just kind of... Which is just like open strings. All open strings. Yeah. But then what's cool is um, that little variation as he, he goes from playing a G, which he's kind of doubling on the A string 10th fret, and then going to an F sharp. So it's... That's good stuff. So subtle. Literally one finger move. Right. And it's haunting mm-hmm. and epic and incredible in the way they develop it. And then you hear it on the distorted guitars by the third verse or whatever the verse is when it gets distorted. It's so good. The way that Eric Kretz just almost subliminally makes this song complex when he finally enters on drums in the... He comes in the chorus with the huge sweeping C major 7 chord. But then they get into the verse with him drumming, and just next time you hear it, pay attention to the open hi-hats, because you'll hear him placing them in places you would not expect. The downbeat of one, the upbeat of two, the downbeat of three, and you're just like, that's so weird. But I think what he heard was, this is a very static thing. Like, that's, as Dean DeLeo guitar lines go, that's as basic as they come. Mm. So he's like, I got a lot of space. Sure. To fill in there. So that's kind of... 
You know what I mean? So he's doing a lot of ghost strokes, but also that little hi-hat, really subtle tone. It's like sometimes hi-hats can be really kind of brittle sounding to mm. our ears. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not these. It's just a really good sounding drum kit. Those little subtleties go so far in just my appreciation of what these guys do or what any band that includes those kind of details is after. I like what they're after with their songwriting and their songcraft. And this is one of the best examples of it. I give it a nine. Mm. It was higher. I still think by the end of this season, this will be in the conversation for my favorite closer. Oh, wow. Nice. Without question. It's funny, though, that I've rated certain songs, that, like the singles higher than this, where like I, re- I think, because I think they're better songs. Okay. Quote, unquote. But I love this. A nine, I'm not giving out many nines either. Mm, you know what I mean? This, it's true. This means a lot to me, this song. And um, just to keep the bit going and, and see it through. The band was doing so well with the tritone thing. They were doing so well here. And then they modulate to an A major chord uh, for the bridge. You know, whatever it's going on there. It's, you know, the bridge is cool, nice harmonies. And then it ends with this. That's their favorite thing in the whole wide world. Like pointing this out would actually make people like them less because they're like they're just doing that thing again. It makes me like them more because it works beautifully in the song. They're just mm. finding what extensions can I add to that thing. And F would have worked fine. But works even better. Why? That's adding a B and an E to an F chord. What are we going to next? An E minor. So it's effectively setting up the next tonality while still in the previous one. Mm. So there's musical purpose. Yeah. It's not just, check this out, isn't this novel? If it didn't sound good, they wouldn't do it. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's not a moment outside of maybe my rendition of Big Empty (laughs) where you hear a dissonance here and you go like, that's distracting. In my opinion, every one works and makes the song better. I mean, this one is completely superfluous, but you can understand why it's there. Unfriendly. You know, also amazing vocal. I mean, just like when he's quiet, when he's loud, but everything about this Wyland vocal is if someone ever said, I don't like the singer of Sunday Pilots, I'd put this song on and say, What in what way is this bad singing? Right. It's not It's because everybody knows the his I guess for lack of a better term, his fake voice. Absolutely, yeah. The And I feel yeah. <laughs> down the ways to go. Exactly. Yeah, which is Cool too for what that is, you know. Sure, but it's fine. this is better. This is more my cup of tea for yes. sure. More my piece of pie. If mm. you want to quote a song off of Core. Um, what was your score for that? Nine and a half. Oh my God, you went higher than I. That's I awesome. Sure did yeah. Second highest rated song on the record for me. Amazing. Yeah. Silver Gun Superman and, and Kitchenware. Which, by the way, just say, my two favorite songs that aren't singles on the record are absolutely those two. Nice. Absolutely. And and historically, those were the songs that were my favorites. They're so great. I think that's what's cool about this process. It makes you reevaluate the songs you haven't intellectualized. You've heard a million times I haven't intellectualized. Mm. Interstate, Vaseline, and Big Empty were those for me, where I go like, right, there's a reason, dot, dot, dot. Sure. <laughs> you know, it was there's like There's a that. reason they were massive. Absolutely. I think several songs of this could have been massive. I think Unglued, if gotten like more of a push, could have been a massive hit, too. I think sure. Army Ants could have yeah, been a big truly. hit. Like, they yeah, truly. Yeah, yeah. Like, a lot of these songs. Because there's so many other songs on the radio at the time that sound like that, that people were obsessed with. Right. But I'm also glad that they kind of weren't singles because the, the actual singles are far more unique and far more individualized to Stone Temple Pilots. And they're all different. Exactly. In their ways, you yes. know? Unique among music, but unique even within their output. 
which mm-hmm. is awesome. Oh, I was just talking about Scott Weiland's uh, singing and lyrics. Let's get into the next category, vocals and lyrics. I give an 8.5 here. Wow. Five out of five for singing, without question. Okay. 3.5 for lyrics. Were you docking him? Just the overall general... Yeah, I think there's a lot better writers out there. I agree. I I wasn't even that generous. Uh, you know what? There was a time this week when I was not as generous. And I thought about it. I was like, well... He has a few good lines. And, and, the, and the words are not like useless nothing's disqualifyingly bad exactly and we're gonna have some of that and yes. so i gotta have some leg room as well as headroom mm-hmm. but also i need the headroom for whoever is gonna be the fiona apple ben folds of this season sure i need some headroom so i need fours and fours and fives available to me in that regard but as rock goes i don't know if we'll hear many better singers than this I, for my personal mm. taste we may not okay well i was a little harsher than you lyrics and vocals for me get a seven out of ten okay which is not bad. I gave him four out of five for voice because I knocked him a point for his, his Eddie Vedder impression. For sounding like Matchbox 20? Ye- no. <laughs> no. <laughs> his Rob Thomas impression? It, it's not even... The Matchbox 20 isn't <laughs> Stone Temple Pilots because of the vocals. Oh, it's yeah, because it's, of the I guitar understand. tones and the and the, the melodic riffs of the, of the musicians. Gotcha. Anyways. Four out of five for vocals. If, if he sang like he does in, in Kitchenware more frequently or Big Empty more frequently, it would have been a five. Um, but I did knock him a little bit just because he, he was trying to emulate the sound of the era. And I just think it was overdone and unnecessary because his voice is so good. So I knocked But him I think we established there. he wasn't trying to sound like the era. He was, try, he was trying to sound like something. Right. But it wasn't what people thought it was. And I do but think that's worth sound, pointing out. But it does it sound It puts him way. in this time. Yeah, yes. For so sure. regardless of what his intent was. Sure. This is how it is. It's fair. So maybe I'm being a little mean, whatever. No, no. And so for lyrics, I gave him a three out of five because I think there's nothing offensive, horrible, and they, he does have a few lines that stick out. There. I'm like, oh, that's great. The the water and the bath, drinking the bathtub water and whatever. Is there a case to be made, because the harmonies on this record are awesome, mm. to elevate the vocal half because of that? Robert DeLeo sings amazing harmonies all over this thing. I guess I could call it a 4.5. No, no, no. Call it what it is. But I'm just saying, is there not a case to be made that like that... Well, I kind of threw that in there. Oh, I see. Okay. Because we haven't talked a lot about the No, we haven't. And I wouldn't say they're that often. And I think they use them pretty uh, sparingly, but when they are used, they're great. Always impactful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I would say again, that's that's still four out of five. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. There is uh, one thing I will say. There is very little independent vocal lines mm-hmm. happening you know which a band like weezer does and obviously fish and things like that that we've covered in the past ben folds five uh this is more a harmony that's following the same contour as the lead yes but yeah not a lot of divergent not a lot of uh voice leading as we right would say only in the bridges of like uh silver gun superman lounge fly has a little bit of overlap and and i think that's a really cool aspect of those atmospheric bridges that's part of what makes them atmospheric is the kind of the conversation between voices but uh, i think that's a very fair assessment what what you said there. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So 8.5 for me, 7 for you. Mm-hmm. Um, any lyrics you want to point out or you want to just save it for a laughable lyric at the end? I'll save it towards the end. Okay. So we, I think we've we talked, talked a lot, lot of yes. lyrics. We can just give out the points now. <laughs> Discussion's over. Sounds good. Musical prowess, easiest points, 10 out of 10. Wow. That's generous. <laughs> Who plays better than these guys on their instruments collectively? Who has better taste and this much chops? Mm, that's going to come out this year pearl jam 
They're not as good as these guys. On guitar, they do not have the vocabulary of these guys at all. Jeff Ament, like his bass playing, whoever the hell drums on Vitalogy, I don't know if it's Dave Abruzzi or it's pre-Jack Iron, so I don't know who drums on Vitalogy. I'll be intrigued to see. Good drummer, but like Eric Kretz with his variety of drum styles, just for me. Mm. This is the this is standard the for alternative rock musicianship of this era, for sure. Fantastic. Well, I, I wasn't that harsh. I gave him nine. Nine is good. I think they are very good because uh, I guess I didn't consider any one particular member to be a true virtuoso. Maybe that's a bit harsh because for me, I think of, if I'm thinking musical prowess, 10 out of 10 is every single person that has their instrument is perfect, like on point. And I wouldn't say that these guys are bad by any means. I think they're fantastic. But I guess I, in your uh, sort of the way you think about things, I had to leave a little bit of room for like true perfection and i wouldn't necessarily call this perfection i do think harmonically no one is coming up with chord changes that sound like this so they're full marks for that and that's Um, part of musicianship for sure certainly of course uh their guitar solos are incredible drumming is intuitive bass playing is fantastic but i guess i just can't be generous enough to give them perfect maybe i guess a 9.5 if i was really thinking about it but i feel like nine feels very fair okay I okay. <laughs> I'm curious to see what another band of their ilk, like Pearl Jam or Soundgarden, who I think Soundgarden would probably be just like offhand without the breakdown, probably be the closest mm. for musicianship. But I like what these guys do with their musicianship. I more. suppose I could always go back retroactively and change if you need to, you know. But uh, more context will help. This is only the second record we're talking. I about. know exactly, exactly. It's kind of hard. That said, part of musicianship is knowing when to play and when not to play and knowing when to show off and when to show restraint. Mm-hmm. And these guys aren't playing prog music, right? Right. They're, you know, so I guess you're reserving your 10 for like if Rush releases an album this year or something. Sure. You know, it would be something like that because they're... No, I think Rush is a pretty tasteful prog band as they go. That's probably yeah. one of the most famous prog band of all time mm-hmm. on or a certain yes, level. Or yes, or any of those guys. Yeah. They kind of pick their spots. The best of them do, as far as I'm concerned. The ones I'm most drawn to do. This band, uh, their aim isn't that, but I think they have. they could play that music if they were so inclined, if mm. that makes sense. It shows to me in the ease in which they play this very complex harmonic and rhythmic music. So nine and 10, I mean, that's 19 out of 20. We just like, they smoke this category. Yeah. <laughs> so that's awesome. And I am curious, I, that will be something that will be a unfolding storyline as the year progresses is what gets the 10 for you, you know? I know, I'm going to have to find out. Maybe it will be this in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> Listenability and legacy. This is a cool one. I give this one a nine. Okay. Nine out of 10. Because I truly think that this is an incredibly influential record. If you look at the sort of hard rock genre of the later 90s and early 2000s, I'm talking like um, them Crooked Vultures, Queens of the Stone Age in particular, uh, a lot of Foo Fighters, even bands like Disturbed, Papa Roach, Seether, Shinedown. And I hate to say this, but even like Nickelback. Totally. Very, very influenced by this type of sound. Right. So you've heard so many records. So I, in terms of influence, I gave them five out of five. Oh, okay. I think they're an incredibly influential band. And then it, uh, in terms of listenability, would I put this on and listen to it tomorrow? Most likely not. But if it was put on for me, would I be upset? Absolutely not. All right. So super psyched to listen to it anytime someone wants to listen to it. But it's also hard for me to think about rock records in the listenability because I'm not listening to a lot of rock. Right now, I listen yeah. to a lot of quiet music, a lot of sad music, and a fuck ton of hip-hop music. Right. So I'm not listening to a lot of rock and roll. So that, I guess, maybe is influencing my my uh, score in this category. But I still, four out of five, I would not be upset to listen to it by any means. 
you gave this category one point higher than I. I gave it an eight. Wow. Uh, listenability, five out of five, without mm, question. Okay, I, okay. I never stopped listening to it. I will continue I listening like to it. I feel like you've influenced three. I did because of what you were saying. As much as they were not influenced by Pearl Jam and Nirvana directly, though we did draw a parallel to Unglued and like that style, Nickelback would point to Nirvana and Pearl Jam before they would point to STP. But maybe they were influenced without knowing it. Well, that's entirely possible. And there's a reason that Chester from Linkin Park jumped at the opportunity to sing in this band. He's like, oh my God, this is my favorite band. Right. Linkin Park was the biggest rock band of the early 2000s without yeah, question. for sure, for sure. And all those bands you mentioned, which I have no relationship with, I totally get it. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking more in terms of like, like the rock sound. Like Queens of the Stone Age is basically STP 2.0. I think they came up in parallel worlds with parallel influences. Mm. Right? There's a reason Queens of the Stone Age, you know, Josh Homme or however you say his name, did an album with John Paul Jones on bass and Dave Grohl on drums, then Crooked Vultures, who right. you mentioned. Like, yes. they're Zeppelin heads, they're Aerosmith and Hard Rock heads. Okay, you know? Yeah. Like, in other words, I don't know if it was STP that did, but clearly they came from the same cloth. Mm, okay. That's how I view it. I mean, three, I kicked that around. I wasn't really sure where to go with it. But I also factor in legacy, not just influence. And I don't think this is a band that people talk about, the casual music listener talks about in high esteem Mm. or in high esteem as they should. We just talk about number one record for three consecutive weeks, a rock record. I know, I know. I completely agree with you. More people should be talking about this band. And the fact that they're not shows that they do not have the legacy of a Nirvana, of a Pearl Jam, of a of a Rage, of a... Green Day of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They don't. They're on the next tier down. Well, it's also different because almost every band you just mentioned, Sans Nirvana, is still making still music. That does make a difference. I mean, STP still tours, by the way. They have a new singer. He's great. There's a live in studio of them playing the entirety of Purple with this new singer. He's not Scott Weiland, but he hits all the notes. He's very into the music. The band sounds as great as ever. Like, I would go see them. Like I would. Just, yeah, like if definitely. they ever come around or it's like a cool bill, we should definitely go see them. Like, I think that'd be fun. So they do exist. They are an ongoing concern, but I know what you mean. And they do release records, by the way. But like, I don't care about those records. Mm. You know, but when like Red Hot Chili Peppers released those records last year, did they do one? I know they at least did one. I feel yeah. like they did a second one like quickly something after. Like something like that. Yeah, I didn't really listen to it. I heard the single. I'm not a huge fan. Yeah, right. When he sang in the Scottish Brogue, that one. Whatever, yeah. Like, I cared, and I don't even particularly like that. You know what I mean? But like, I, I was like, oh, right. SCP had an album in the last 10 years? What? Mm-hmm. So in other words, 8 out of 10, very good. Listenability, 5 out of I would give it 10 out of 10 for listenability. But like, I just had to factor in the legacy thing. Also, I need to factor in most of the music it inspired, I don't like. Like hard rock? Like- yeah, hard rock with that kind of thing, that approach to singing, the Nickelbacks and, and, and Matchbox 20s of the mm-hmm. world, a fuel and these kind yeah. of things. Well, I even brought up Nickelback less about the singing quality. I mean, that's a huge part of it, but also just like the the slide guitar and the country influence. Oh, that's interesting. That's really where I was coming from. But there's such like a basic version of this thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Obviously. Right. I am by no means a Nickelback supporter no. or uh, what's the word we always use? Apologist. You're more of a quarterback. Indeed. Let's wrap this up and talk about Time Capsule, Radis Riff, Best Lyric, all that stuff. How about Radis Riff? It's an interesting one. I think mm. we could go different directions here. It really comes down to two. Uh-huh. This is a hard decision. I'll say both of them. Why not? Sure. One would be the intro riff of Interstate Love Song. <laughs> Great. Because it's huge. It's iconic. If we're talking about legacy, that's their legacy. That riff is their legacy, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, for me, the raddest riff is the opening riff of Silver Gun Superman. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
I love those choices. You go Silver Gun Superman? Sure. Why not? Okay. Me too. Whoa. But I'm going with the solo. Oh, okay, that's the cool, piece cool, of cool. music that I want. Just like if it was uh, Pearl Jam 10, I would go with the solo of Alive. Mm-hmm. Right? Even though there's great riffs all over that record, that's right. the thing that musically I'm most drawn to. So even if it's not a riff, that's where I went. Yeah. It's an all timer. Best lyric. Are we doing best or laughable? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we change it up play. every time. No, no, we're doing laughable too. Okay, okay. Uh, that was harder for me, laughable, because there's nothing like really no, atrocious. I have, I had one. I okay, had we one. may have the same one later. <laughs> it's in Loungefly. Okay. Because it's not even the lyric. Because technically, the lyric is she said she'd oh, be no, my yeah. woman. Whoa. She said she'd be my womb. <laughs> so Using weird. substituting the word womb yeah. for woman <laughs> is not. That's not a word. That's kind of like that thing with James Hetfield when he was recording Enter Sandman. Whoa, <laughs> and he was like, maybe you could uh, do a woman or something. You know, a shaman at the end. <laughs> How about instead of, yeah, you do a lot yeah, of, come yeah. on. Yeah, woman. How about a woman? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it should be my womb. <laughs> so well, weird. Maybe the lyric is actually, she said she'd be my womb. I doubt it, but it may be. That'd be a better lyric. I think it would sound right coming out of his voice. I think that does yeah. suit his style. It's literally what he's already saying anyway. To me, the laughable, just because it's like, it just pops out at you. Mm. Moderation is masturbation. <sighs> like, I don't think moderation is masturbation, but whatever. I, I just think it's like. I, that it's, sounds like Ross Daly and cryptic bullshit. Yeah, what exactly. Exactly. It's like, I you sure guess? about this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you say so, bro. <laughs> That's my favorite comeback of all time. You sure, sure about, about that? that? <laughs> Yeah, that or like, is that what you're going with? Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm fucking up right now. Yeah. I, but I actually think the best, and we didn't talk about it when we talked about the song, so I'll mention it now. Like my favorite lyric, I really love these conversations kill. Mm. I love how he sneaks it into these conversations kill. He sneaks it yeah. into the first verse and then it becomes... Which is one of the best, like, heavy vocal parts yeah. on the whole record. Also, what a, what, a, what a weird guitar part that is. I skipped that one on the tritone counter, but one more. There it is. Just for the road. Time capsule. What's the one song that you slash the world could not live without? This was a really tough decision because there's a, there's always two choices. There's the choice where you're like, this is the biggest song, rightfully so, and it needs to live on. Yeah. And then there's the one where you're like, but I love this one. Yeah. Right? So I went a little little bit of both. Big Empty. Oh, very nice. Because it's my favorite of the singles. Sure. And I think it's better by a mile than, well, maybe not a mile. It's better than Interstate Love Song, which is their biggest song. Okay. And I was going to say Pretty Penny, which is crazy. <laughs> wow. For some reason, I was like, this song, more people need to know about this oh, song because yeah, it's weird you. and no one even knows that it's STP or even know that it exists at all. But no, I, I'm going to go Big Empty. I think that's a solid choice. That's a great choice. Uh, I, went with, <laughs> I went with the alternative option that you pointed out, which is not Pretty Penny. Uh, <laughs> no, that's a cool song. That's a fascinating choice. Um, Interstate Love Song. Nice. I think it's the most perfectly written of all of these, mm. in addition to being popular, having the legacy that it has. And I like it. Yeah, absolutely. There's I nothing do not to like. personally prefer Big Empty as a listener, 
but there's more to interstate than meets the eye. Mm. And that chord progression is just something I'll, I'll never forget and still like just tickles me even all these years later. That's great. So interstate love song for me, going in the time capsule. For you, big empty. You know it. We're going chalk. I'm curious to see when the album is like, you know what? We've just happened to have started with two albums where we really like the singles. Yeah. And I'm sure that won't always be the case. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure. Except most singles from the 90s are all really good. I'm wondering if it's the nature of this Like 90s radio. Yeah. 90s radio was amazing. Like I mentioned, I Will Follow You Into the Dark earlier, the Mm. Death Cab song, Mm. which is a great song, but like on plans, which isn't my favorite Death Cab record or anything. Agreed. That's not like a top three song for me, even though it's by far the most popular. Marching Bands of Manhattan, whatever the, uh, oh, uh, uh, Soul Meets Body. Uh, Those those are great songs, but those aren't my favorites on that record. Really? Even though they were the singles. I can't. I, I think they're I awesome. would almost disagree. I think both of those songs are incredible. I'm saying they're incredible. I'm saying they're not my favorites. Mm, mm-hmm. In other words, like it'd be harder for me to choose those when Brothers on the Hotel Bed is waiting for me there. I or got something, you. you know, got which you. is just like, oh, that's the one I actually like that moves me. Mm-hmm. You know, even though those are great songs. Again, I like them both. But in other words, that's from 10 years after this, or actually 11 years after this. I think it came out in 05. Maybe something changes somewhere <laughs> along the line where it's like, actually, they just go with like the most obvious song and not necessarily the best song. Mm. And I think at this time they were doing the most obvious and best song. <laughs> Somehow yeah. those things aligned more. Yeah, you know? yeah. They're also the most unique songs. Every single was the most were the most unique, best crafted. Now I got to pull up my spreadsheet to see what my total score is. I was doing the same. All right, my overall score ended up being forty three point seven two seven, which is a very high score. Forty three point seven two seven. Yes. Hmm. I'm 42.727. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Do some quick math. What is that? <laughs> quick math. Uh, 86.454 cumulative score. Oh my goodness. Oh shit. I just realized because I care I keep a spreadsheet for my numbers and then I put my notes into a Word doc. I mistyped. And my song score is average. 8.227, which is identical to yours. <laughs> so we have the exact same song score out of 11 songs, and we gave the songs very different scores. Different spread. Identical result. That's amazing. How cool is that? That's very, very cool. Sorry, everybody. should have had that earlier in the show, but uh, if you're staying here listening late, you get the good news. <laughs> listening late. Uh, and you get the good news of uh, hearing us right now, because we actually haven't talked about it. What album do we do next? Oh, my goodness. Maybe we should do a not rock and roll record. Since Name we've it. done two rock records. Let's consult the scrolls. Ooh, I got a good one. Since I've been on such a mega hip-hop kick, why don't we do Illmatic? Ah, Nas. I'm game. One of the biggest hip-hop records of all time. Yeah. And one of the best. One of the best. That'll be really exciting. I look forward to studying that album. Mm. It's one I only... I did not have at the time. In fact, the first Nas song I heard was If I Ruled the World, which is not on that album. It was something... It, Lauren Hill was on it. It was mm-hmm, a good track. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was on the radio. I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I kind of missed Illmatic. It was only as an adult that I got into it. But even so, you know, as an adult, like, well, actually, you go pretty deep with records. But I never I got to. deep, deep, deep with it. I never, like, read the lyrics. I never looked at the liner notes. I don't mm. know that much about it. So, yeah. And I also... I'm kind of the same. I also did not get into it until my adult life also. Cool. So it'll be cool to talk about. Oh, agreed. Yeah. Uh, something we'll talk about more as we start amassing more episodes at the end of an episode will be where this album is stacking up among mm-hmm, others. Mm-hmm. But since there's only one other album to talk about right now, we will let's hold leave off. it. Let's leave it. Let's let's get some uh 
Excuse me? It did better than the first one. Oh, 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 but that's it. That's it. That's all you need to know. We'll talk more later. And on that note, I guess I'll say this is Chris. And this is Chris. And that was another Record of the Year. Record of the Year.